Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero and hosted by the Heroes Media Group. This United States Army Special Forces combat veteran has a story to tell. Uh, he's doing it uh, through the words of his books, but also by doing podcasts like this. Uh, he's got some great wisdom at the end of the interview. Really humbled and honored to have Robert Patrick Lewis on the show today, and I think you're going to enjoy his story. And thank you for listening to Straight Out of Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is U.S. Army Special Forces combat decorated soldier and author Robert Patrick Lewis. Robert served as a Special Forces medic in the 10th. Special Forces Group, Airborne. He deployed to Afghanistan where he was wounded, and thank God he made it back pretty much intact. Also served in Iraq and North Africa. Since leaving active duty, Robert has published three books, and we'll get to those later on in the conversation. He has been featured on Fox News, The Dennis Miller Show, The Adam Carolla Show, The Herman Cain Show, and writes frequently for the Heroes Media Group, where we have our show hosted from. Robert is married and jumps between Los Angeles and Dallas. Quite a mix of territories there. And uh, California to Texas. We, we, lo- we love them both, right? Couldn't be more different. <laughs> that, that couldn't be more different. We love them both. But, you know, thanks for being here. I'm humbled and honored to have you here, Robert, and appreciate you uh, as a person and as a former service member. Uh, and as somebody who's working in the community now to uh, make things better for those who have worn the uniform, but also uh, for American businesses. Hey, it's an honor to be here, brother. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. And uh, so before we get started, let's talk about, you know, we will get to your books, but let's talk about your background, where you came from, you know, who your mentors were and how you even made it to the to U.S. Special Forces. Tell us about that, Robert. Yeah, that's it's a really interesting story because I come from a long line of military men, but I was actually the first guy in my family that wasn't going to go into the military. Um, Grandpa was in for 32 years between infantry and uh, Army intelligence. He ended up as the commandant of the Army Security Agency at Fort Devens. Dad was a Navy pilot. Cousin was an Air Force pilot. Just got, you know, all over the place with the, the breadth of the services from our family. But when I, I was adopted, when I was a baby, and my mom died when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and I kind of went off the deep end, I got into a lot of trouble uh, when I was a kid. And so when it came that time to kind of make that decision, if I wanted to go to a service academy or something like that, my dad and I sat down and he went, you're not going to go to the military. And I went, no way, I'm not. So I chose, I went to civilian college, uh, I started off at the University of Texas, then Texas State University. And then 9-11 happened, my sophomore year of college. And I kind of looked up to the sky and went, okay, I guess that that's my cue. That <laughs> that means I'm not going to be the one to break the line. Uh, I did a lot of research to try to figure out what I wanted to do. You know, dad was Navy, but I wanted my feet on the ground if I was going to get shot at. 
I knew I wanted to do special operations. I saw the pictures of Green Berets on horseback in Afghanistan right after the, in, uh, right when the war started, and I just something about that really called to me. Um, but having all these guys and men and women in my family from the military, they all told me the same thing: graduate, just graduate first. This war is not going anywhere. So finish out your degree, and then go do it. So I joined the delayed entry program. Uh, so a month after college graduation, I left for infantry basic training, uh, went through basic, and then I went straight to airborne school, and then I went through SOPSI, which is a weed-out course for the Q course, went into the Special Forces Qualification course, and then found my way to uh, 10th Special Forces Group, starting off in Germany in 1st Battalion. So in terms now, did of you, now, were you an NCO or were you an officer? Yeah, I, I was an NCO. I had a college degree, but I knew that Special Forces was what I wanted to do. Um, and that just, it's a very different process. And I was, I didn't know if I wanted to do a career or do it, but I knew it was one of those things where I knew exactly where I belonged. I knew what I wanted to do. So I signed up for the 18 x-ray program, which allowed me to go and go straight through the pipeline and then go to selection and try out. Now, if you, if you fail, uh, if you don't make it through selection, you go back to the needs of the regular army and then you can submit to go to, uh, go to officer candidate school if you want. But I knew that I was made to be a Green Beret. That was the one thing I really wanted to do. So I went straight through as an NCO. That's awesome. So we're, so you went to Benning then for your Army uh, Infantry School. Yeah, and I tell you, it, it, was, <laughs> it was interesting. I went, I left after I graduated college, so I went in October. So I got to, through Georgia and North Carolina, I got to live through just the absolute worst weather you can imagine uh, for going through that kind of stuff, man, between just super sticky hot and, you know, literally snowing on us during bivouacs. So it was um, it was interesting. Was there any one thing that happened in any of your training before you got to your, you know, your permanent duty station? Was there any one thing that stood out that impacted you during that training? Yeah, you know, I, I met some really great guys. Uh, that's the thing about the Q course is uh, I was an 18 Delta, so I spent an extra year in the Q course than most uh, Green Berets would because the medical training is a year in and of itself. I'm one of the few guys to have gone all the way through the 18 Delta course without recycling anything, um, but it just means that a lot of the guys that I started with were already at group by the time I graduated the medical course uh, portion of it. Um, so I met some great dudes. We had a lot of people that we lost along the way just because it's tough. I mean, they're, they're, the Q course is made to be very difficult and to make you really dig down deep and understand a lot about yourself. And if you really, really want to be there, cause if you're just there because you think it'll be cool to wear the green beret, then you're not going to last that long because boy, it, it takes some soul search and it really digs down to the deepest parts of your soul to make sure it's what you want to do and that you're really hundred percent in. But Throughout all that, I think the one thing that really happened to me that impacted me the most, I was a, I almost had a heat stroke in selection. And it had been one of those things where uh, I went through basic training and airborne school. It was kind of cold. Selection, the end of selection has this really, really difficult um, portion of it called team week where it just really, I mean, it puts it to you. And it, our team week happened the first week that it got hot. And so none of us were really prepared for it. We had been so used to bundling up and so used to the cold weather that all of a sudden North Carolina, hot and muggy, uh, it really, really punched us all in the face. 
And I, you know, pretty new to the army. I didn't know a whole lot about what you needed to do. And I nearly had a heat stroke that really, really woke me up to a lot of stuff and just how severe, uh, the, the elements can be and how important it is to take care of, you know, these, these basic elements of, uh, of your body to make sure the guys can keep going and then becoming a medic that became super important. So I was always, I was, they call the, the medic in an ODA, the team mom. Right. So I was really the team mom walking around to all of our guys every day. Did you eat enough? Have you drank enough? Here, drink some more water. Just really making sure all of the little things were were all tapped out and all done for our guys. So it wouldn't be something stupid like a heat casualty that would take one of our guys out of the fight. And that stayed with me to this day. Well, that's yeah. Thank God, you know, that you're still here because, you know, heat stroke can definitely ruin your day and can kill you. Yeah. Uh, if it's not, you know, if it's not taken care of, but uh, certainly not the way you want to learn, you know, a lesson like that. But at least, you know, it does sink in and, and it makes then because of that experience, you're able to help your, you know, your other brothers. Um, so you're so you're at you're in Germany. And when was your first deployment? Pretty quickly. So um, there are two four deployed units within special forces. There's first of the first and first of the 10th. And they split the globe in half. So first of the first, Eastern Hemisphere, first of the 10th, Western Hemisphere. And they're built to kind of be a quick reaction force to if something happens on that side of the globe, you can get there. You can set up for other elements that may come in. But basically, if something needs to be done really, really quickly, you guys go. So we traveled all over the place. Uh, I, was, I did my first deployment to Iraq within a few months of getting to the unit. As soon as I got, and I talk about this a lot in my book, Love Me When I'm Gone, I called it the whirlwind because I started this crazy period for about two years where I was about to come home from Iraq. I got uh, an email from my team sergeant, hey, you're going to meet us in Scotland because oh, no, you're going to meet us in Florida because we're doing a training exercise. In Florida, we found out we had to meet the rest of the company in Scotland for another training exercise. In Scotland, on the plane back, I found out I'm going to Africa as soon as you get back. In Africa, I found out we were getting another deployment. So it just, it really was. And that's, you know, I used to call it a have gun, will travel, right? The life of not just a Green Beret where you're really gone all the time, but specifically being in one of those four deployed units, you're just, you're all over the place all the time. Yeah, and I have heard that. So, you know, all these places you're going to, did you... Did you understand what the mission was and did you understand while we were there? Yeah, uh, Africa absolutely changed my perception of life uh, 100%. It changed the way I view things. It changed the way I see the world. And I think that's one of the big differences in why certain people are called to be a Green Beret. Uh, It's not only this idea that you have you know, no problem with running headfirst into a room full of fire coming at you to, to clear the room and take down bad guys. But also, you know, a big part of that mission of having some empathy and living, literally living with your host nation uh, soldiers, whether it be Africa, Iraq, Afghanistan, or anywhere else on the planet, and actually living with them, getting to know their culture, you know, breaking bread with them on a daily basis. And fighting, going with these guys in the fight where you might die every single day, but really, really getting to know their culture. And a lot of that came from my childhood. I was My dad was a pilot. We traveled all the time. I did study abroad. So my last semester of college, I lived in France. And it's like 
it's one of those things where I felt my entire life was was formed around building and preparing me for that because I really I understood it. We were helping these people either defend their country or take their country back. That's what a Green Beret does. It's it's guerrilla warfare and in foreign inter- internal defense. And I I was on board 100%. I absolutely loved it. I loved getting to know all these other cultures and, you know, getting to eat and, and, you know, play music and listen to music and, and get to know our guys so well. Uh, it really, they, they say some green berets, they call it going native, right? Where you spend so much time to get so close to your local guys that you become native. you like, you become one of them. And that's why we grow the beards. We grow out the hair. We wear the local clothing. We get to know the language. You get to know all the little parts and customs because, it's integral because you have to become one unit, not just the advisors training these guys, but a part of the same unit. Yeah. You know, so you're in these hostile environments, you know, we're sent there obviously for, you know, mission and sometimes humanitarian aid, but you know, what do you, what do you think personally kept you focused when you were in those environments? I, I would like to say that if you, if you pricked my finger, I bleed red, white, and blue. I just being from a military family, Growing up in Texas, I just I'm about as patriotic as it gets. Uh, when I was preparing to go to basic training and I started really doing a lot of long, long, long runs, uh, I would listen to the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, like I really got into it. That's what, what I would use for my motivation while I was running. You know, I would I would lead Greenwood, right? God bless the God bless the USA. All this stuff that really, really helped me understand, and it, it came. In a lot of use when I was in the Q course and having a lot of really, really difficult times and, you know, walk the skin off of my feet a couple of days in a row, uh, really being able to dig down and understand that my love for my country was what kept me going. And I knew that I had the type of personality where I could do things, not only physically, but mentally that most people couldn't and that my country needed me, that my country needed people like that who would be able to do the things that I would have to do uh, and do it because they love their country. Yeah, that's so well put. You know, it's interesting to me that, you know, we meet so many people in the States that have never been outside of these borders. And a lot of people seem to think that the rest of the world lives like we do. (laughs) Now, let me ask you this. So that being said, Robert, you know, tell the listeners – some of your, you know, how the rest of the world lives and why it's important for us to remember what you just said, our country. Yeah. And you know, that's, so I, I have a goal that I want to take my kids. I have four kids and I want to take them to Africa when they get a little older. You know, I had said that Africa really changed my perception of life. And it's because you see these crazy things where, you know, you have people that literally have to walk two miles every morning to go get their water for the day. They don't eat very often. I mean, they can eat a couple of meals a week, and they don't have breakfast, lunch, and dinner like we have. They're lucky when they eat, yet they are some of the happiest people you will ever meet. They love life. They love their family. They love their village. And there are there are bad guys with guns. You know, that's the reason we have to be there. That's one of those places where people can disappear and go off the grid and start a training camp, and that's the reason that we're all there. But the majority, 99%, of the people there are happy. And it really made me understand that like humanity, life isn't about what you have. It's what you see in life. It's how you enjoy it. It's how you spend the time with your family. It's how you love those around you. That really changed my perception from Africa. And then, 
you know, there's a lot of people that I talk to that seem to think Iraq and Afghanistan were essentially the same thing in the same war. And that couldn't be more wrong. I mean, those two cultures, even though they're so close together, are like black and white difference. You know, Iraq is is very suburban almost. It's very industrialized and you're in a lot of cities. And that's why we have so much CQB, whereas Afghanistan is extremely rural, where like Africa, there's not a lot of running water. There's, you know, the villages are hours apart from each other. But again, except for the bad guys with guns, the people in Afghanistan that I found were extremely nice. Their customs are all geared around being kind to strangers. And, you know, Marcus Luttrell, lone survivor, that's the reason that, you know, the Afghan basically saved his life because it's part of their their custom to help strangers, to help anybody you meet that needs it. And they really do. They are great. And, you know, we found out most of the bad guys who were fighting in Afghanistan weren't actually Afghans. They're all foreign fighters. And we had the same in Iraq, where the people that actually lived there were great people, but it was angry people from all over the Middle East and Chechnya that had found their way to the Middle East to fight this proxy war against the United States. But the people that were there were great and happy. And I love the food. You know, such uh, it's great stories because, you know, when we tend to dehumanize others, I personally believe we dehumanize ourselves. And, you know, to put a, a spin on it like you just did, you know, makes me realize that, you know, people are people pretty much wherever you go. It's the politics that enters into the fray. And, and you know, it's amazing to me, you know, that those people do come from all over the world. As you say, this proxy war against terrorism, basically tribalism. But... <sighs> It's just it's nice to know that there are most people are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And no matter where you go, family, really, at the end of the day, loving your family, how you treat those around you. That's really the most important part of life. Doesn't matter what you have or where you are. Love yourself. Love your family. Be kind to your friends. Be kind to strangers. But if somebody threatens your country, your family, your friends, be prepared to do whatever you have to to protect them. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the day that you uh, received your Purple Heart? Yeah, you know, it's funny because that one of the reasons I I fell in love with writing so much is because it was so, so therapeutic. I actually taught a uh, writing therapy course for vets with PTSD at the West Los Angeles VA for a while because I got so much out of writing. Um, I don't write anything in order. So the first book, the first chapter I ever wrote for a book was, I believe, chapter 19 of uh, Love Me When I'm Gone, and that's Operation Payback. So out of this 20-some-odd chapter book, the first pay, the first chapter I wrote was the one about the day that I got shot because it had been so stuck and so strong in my head because I had been I had dreamt, I dreamt about it. You know, I had kind of relived it several times and and that act of actually writing down was so therapeutic that it helps. But uh, if you read the book, Let Me When I'm Gone, that's one of the things that it outlines is we had certain areas of Afghanistan. We were all over uh, Afghanistan. We had spread our ODAs kind of across uh, most of the country. And on our deployment there, there was this place called the Tagab Valley, uh, which was one of the hottest places in Afghanistan at the moment. And every time our ODA that was in that area left the base, they got shot at. And on one of the uh, missions that they had left on, our brother Pat was killed. That really, really, really got us. Pat was killed and a couple of the other guys 
were uh, wounded. And so we decided to put together Operation Payback, where we took our entire company. So we had six teams of Green Berets that went in and decided we were going to get the guys that had killed Pat and that were causing so much trouble. Uh, so we had an entire company mission where we went through, went through to find exactly where these bad guys were. Uh, we got to a point where I was in a firefight in the middle of the city, and there were a couple of hundred of the bad guys and just my ODA in the point where we were. And uh, my captain and I were spread behind a wall shooting back at these guys in a house that were essentially shooting down on us. And um, we were returning fire. We were shooting back and forth. And next thing you know, the wall next to me exploded. And I got blown out into an alleyway and knocked unconscious and uh, woke up, low-crawled myself back behind cover because there was just gunfire everywhere. And uh, I got up and started returning fire. And all of a sudden, my, I felt my arm hurt. I wasn't sure if a rocket hit me before I got knocked out or what it was. And I looked down, and the entire left side of my body was just covered in blood. And I've got pictures on the website, lemmewhenimgone.com, in the book and uh, also on the Facebook page. And uh, you can see my, my uniform, the entire left side was just blood. But as a medic, I had cross-trained my team pretty well. So my captain was right next to me. He got a bandage on it. He took care of it. But we were still in the middle of a firefight. <laughs> I couldn't really just sit down and nurse my wounds. So we had to fight until uh, another team came on station and could help us kind of break contact a little bit. And uh, then, thankfully, we had A-10s, uh, the angels on the wings of ground fighters, that uh, leveled the house we had been fighting against. Well, so I'm glad you're here, still here. You know, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, there's talk to many wounded veterans, and um, just you know, I'm I'm grateful and thankful that that all of you uh, made it through to be able to come back here and tell your stories because it is useful. And you know, one thing that you pointed out. Robert, that is extremely important, you know, as a writer that, you know, how therapeutic it is to, to, to continue to tell the stories, you know, to help work through, but also to let others know that, that they're not alone. All of these stories are relevant. They're all, they all offer perspectives about real experiences. And uh, I can't help but to think that, you know, how therapeutic it really is. And that's why, even this show to talk about these things, you know, gives us a perspective, but it also allows us the opportunity to heal. And so I, I agree, you know, thank you for telling us about that. I, I just, so was that your last deployment, Afghanistan in a combat environment? No, uh, no. So I went to Afghanistan with uh, 110. And shortly after we got back from Afghanistan, I got orders to go back to um, 10th Maine in Colorado. Uh, but they were just about to deploy to Iraq. So we got back from Afghanistan. I think I had a couple of weeks to pack my stuff and fly out to Colorado. And then I had just enough time to in process, buy a condo there, and I met my company back in Iraq. Um, so it was pretty much straight. I mean, within a month and a half of getting back from Afghanistan, I think I was in Iraq. Wow. So <laughs> they didn't give you guys much time to recover, did they? Well, and I asked, I knew when I was getting orders to go back to 10th Maine, I specifically wanted to go right back to fight. I mean, I just, again, I joined the military to fight for my country. I didn't want to sit around, you know, I just, I didn't join the army to just sit on my butt, right? So uh, I did as much finagling as I could and reached out 
to you know other team sergeants that were friends of my team sergeant and just asked people like hey i want to go right back into theater i don't want i want to keep going and uh so they worked it out to where i got able to go to a company that was deploying directly and uh, meet them there so i could stay in the fight well you know that's and that's something sometimes it's hard for people to, to understand you know the commitment and the sacrifice and we say this all the time that and i've heard this before that you know when you raise you know your right hand and you know, to, to, to do the oath, you know, to the Constitution of the United States, it, 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 you know, it, it's just something that a lot of people don't do. And so sometimes it's hard. Well, why would Robert want to go back to the fight? Because that's what's in a lot of these uh, people that join the military. Our brothers and sisters did it for a reason. And, and somehow, you know, we're not going to give up the fight. So. Uh, you know, thank you for doing that. And again, I'm glad that you, you know, were able to do the rest of your service without getting seriously wounded or hurt. You know, tell us about how, you know, you terminated your service and how, and what the transition was like. Yeah. Well that, you know, it it was another one of those points in my life where I, I sat at a crossroads. I had been thinking about going to the next level to go into one of the other organizations that has a selection uh, of their own and uh, I had my fiance and now my ex-wife uh, that I had spoken to about that. And she had basically said, you can do that or you can marry me, but you can't do both because I'm not going to be married to somebody that I never see. And, you know, I was adopted. I, I hit the adoption lottery. I was raised by amazing parents. And I always just wanted a family of my own. And so on that last deployment to Iraq, I really did a lot of soul searching do I want to go to one of these other organizations where I'm gone more than I ever was as a Green Beret? Or do I want to get out, start a family, you know, go, I wanted to go to med school because I love the medicine thing. And I spent a lot of my deployment really, really thinking about which one I was going to do. I, I finally decided that, you know, having a family was the most important thing in the world to me. And so I applied for the uh, post 9-11 GI Bill, applied to uh, do pre-med at UCLA. Uh, I got accepted, and I got accepted to do the uh, GI Bill, and so I said, okay, I guess that's it. I put in my paperwork and uh, started my path down uh, starting a family. Well, what was that transition like? Did you find it was easy to navigate or, you know? It was, you know, it was it was difficult. Some parts more difficult than others. Um, you know, I talked about getting approved for the post-9-11 GI Bill. Well, when I actually got back and actually started and had paid for classes, they denied it. So even though the army, I had a letter from the army saying, you are approved to do this program. When I actually had paid for the first round of classes and books, they said, oh, no, no, that's not approved. That program isn't approved for you. So that was uh, just a real pain because I had, I, had, I had a good amount of money and savings from being deployed for a few years straight, but I had no job. I was going to be a full-time student looking down med school. So a full-time student for a long time, and so I realized I was going to start depleting my savings pretty quickly. But we got that that situation figured out. And then, you know, we had the issue where my then fiance and I had been dating long distance for four, four or five years between my being in the Q course, my being, you know, deployed all over the place. And now all of a sudden we were right next to each other every day, all day. And that's an issue that a lot of guys have coming back from a deployment. So you really got to learn to walk walk through those, you know, figure out how you can, you can get around these issues of each of you being stubborn and having things the way that you want them, but learning how to work through those problems and, and figure it out amongst yourself. And then I had those issues with just 
you're in the military, you're surrounded by guys, especially on an ODA, you're surrounded by a bunch of guys that all have their own priorities of work. They all have exactly what they have to do and what they have to get done before anything else happens. It's just what you do. You get back from a mission, you make sure the trucks are, are all gassed up, you make sure your weapon is clean and uh, fully maxed out on all the ammo you need, you make sure you got all the stuff that you need. It, it, it's, you're just with a group of guys that do it like it's breathing. And then you go to the civilian world and you realize most of the world isn't like that. People got their own things to do. And so learning to deal with other people that, you know, don't snap to attention and go, you know, carry out your order as soon as you tell them that it took a lot of uh, patience. It took learning a lot of patience on all of those aspects to just really begin to understand how to acclimatize back into the world and, you know, get used to it and basically hold my tongue a lot. <laughs> but well, you integrate know, back in. You know, I'm glad you pointed that out because we had talked about that earlier that, you know, it's, it's without a doubt, if you've been in the military, you have a great perspective on diversity, on teamwork, on mission orientation, mission accomplishment, how to adapt and overcome. You know, we get, you know, chain of command, you know, understanding the leadership roles and what our role in that chain is. And then we do get out into the civilian world, and by no fault of their own, they don't have a lot of those same skill sets, or at least right. if, if they do, it's a different in perspective. So, you know, we were talking about that earlier, Robert and I, we were saying, you know, so maybe, and what you just said, man, was so cool, because patience is a huge part of it. We yeah. need to be patient with our civilian counterparts, but also, you know, if there's any non-veterans listening the civilians you know be patient with us because you know <laughs> yeah. robert just explained the kind of environment that'll that a lot not everybody's special forces we get that but the systems are very similar like you just said you know chain of command you know when somebody asks you to do something you do it and you can usually but not always count on our brothers or sisters to get the job done especially in the military yep so, you know, so it goes both ways, but, you know, and imagine, imagine if we are patient as veterans, imagine the, 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 the piece of the puzzle that we could give to any organization that we would go to work for. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And thankfully a lot of organizations are starting to learn that there are some of it that, you know, say that as more of a PR stunt than, than actually do anything, but there are a lot of them that are actually starting to understand the value that veterans bring to their organization. Just the, you know, the, the process orientation, the way that you can look at the big picture and the way that you're mission focused and you will get it done no matter what it takes. And a lot of them are starting to learn that, you know, you, you got to learn to deal with politics a lot more, but there are, there's a lot of vet veterans that are starting to add a lot more value to corporations than we've had in the very near future. Yeah. Well put. So let's, um, you mentioned it earlier, the therapeutic side of the writing. Tell us, you know, what motivated you to start writing? Uh, you know, it was actually my team sergeant. So when I got to my first station in Germany, I had my initial counseling with uh, my team sergeant. And one of the first things he told me was start a journal because your life's about to get a lot more interesting. And I took him up on it. And I, I thank God that I did, because especially when I was in that whirlwind of just going from one place to another, I, I used it really just to keep track of what was going on and where I had been. And then I got out and I hadn't put too much thought to it. And we found out we were pregnant with my first son. 
And I started really thinking about it. I thought, you know, I really want a way to pass on the knowledge and the information and all these things that dad and his brothers did to let my son know about it someday. And so I took all these little, you know, journal, journal entries and I began building it into something that each of the guys from my team could hand off to their sons one day. And I started sending out to all the guys from my ODA just to make sure, did, did everything really happen like this? Is, is my timeline right? Is my order of events right? Are all the details right? And as we started getting more and more and more of these little pieces of what had gone on, some of the guys started saying, you know, this, this has got to be for more than just us. This is amazing. You've got to hand this on. You've got to show this to people. So we published it as a book. And um, after the first one was published, I just, I kind of, I fell in love with it. Not just the therapeutic part of it, but exercising those creative muscles. And, you know, my dad as a Navy guy, I grew up reading Tom Clancy books that he had had. And I just always loved military fiction and, you know, this idea of, of, you know, the world is in danger and it needs somebody to save it. And I figured I had more experience. You know, Tom Clancy was never in the military. I knew I had the experience. I loved writing. One day, my ODA and I sat down. We met up in Colorado, had some adult beverages, and we started talking. Like, why hasn't America been invaded yet? Like, we have all the natural resources in the world. We have the greatest economy. Why haven't we been invaded? Well, it's going to happen. We, we all kind of knew that whatever would happen, that it was probably going to happen at some point. And so I got back from that meeting. We had actually planned out, like, what we would do if that happened. And I got back from that weekend in Colorado. I started looking at the news and seeing some very scary things that all of our enemies were becoming very good friends. This is 2014. So China and Russia were creating uh, financial and economic deals. Iran and Russia were creating uh, natural gas pipeline deals. Uh, North Korea and China were very good friends. And just being a Green Beret and you know, using this training we had to think about second and third and fourth order effects – I started dreaming up, like, why would all these things be going on? How would it be happening? And if somebody did want to invade us, how would they do it? Where would they start? How would we know it was coming? And I sat down and I started writing the first book of the pact, and I just fell in love with fiction. I fell in love with being able to create this world and put all this stuff that I've learned and that I know, and you know, I'm a huge history buff. So being able to put that into this writing and teach people I absolutely fell in love with it. And so now it's, it's my favorite thing to do is to sit down and write and dream up these little pieces of this world and, you know, of course, save the day. Who doesn't love saving the day? But uh, to convey it and pass it along to people and be able to pass along, you know, learning and messages and, and all this experience that I had from my time in Special Forces. That's awesome. So what was the title of that book? So the fiction series, it's called The Pact Trilogy. Um, there's the Pact Book One and the Pact Book Two, Battle Hymn of the Republic, just went on sale two weeks ago. That's awesome. So where can people get that? So there's the pactbook.com, which has links to both books, but also uh, some of the pieces and nuggets of information that led me to different significant storylines in the book. Because while it is fiction, every piece of the fiction was based in something in reality, either in the news or, you know, we found out that Al-Qaeda was, uh, was colluding with the cartels to smuggle guerrilla sleeper cells in the United States. That's not just in the book. That really happened. All these little things that I saw that was going on, I've got little nuggets of that information on the packbook.com. 
You can also find them all on Amazon. Uh, Book One and Let Me When I'm Gone are available on Audible, uh, Amazon, iTunes, and they're all in Kindle. That's awesome. So we'll put that information out for sure. And uh, let me ask you this. You know, what what does freedom actually mean to you? I think freedom is it's choice and it's rights and it's the ability to live your life and love your family and enjoy your life in the way that you see fit as long as you're not hurting anybody else and or stepping on anybody else's right to enjoy their life and love their family. And I think that's something that we've lost a lot over the last couple of years is there are a lot of people that say, well, I want this. And so nobody else should be able to get in the way of that. But that that's not really it. Because if you're trampling all over somebody else's rights, then you're destroying the whole point of freedom in and of itself. And it's a difficult thing to get to everybody being able to be completely free and love their family and enjoy their life in the way that they see best. But, you know, I, I really think freedom is that ability to say what you believe, to worship whatever God you want, to love your family in any way that you want, to make money as long as you're not harming anybody else to exercise those rights. And I think that's the amazing thing. America is this social experiment that has never really been attempted anywhere else in the world to give the individuals of this country that freedom that nobody else really has. You know, you, you asked me early on about, you know, what these other cultures were like around the, the world. None of them have that level of freedom that we have. And I think that is the defining characteristic of America, not only the free market, but also this freedom to Protect your family, love your family, worship whichever God you want, and do what is that you think is best as long as you're not harming anybody else. Well put. Do you, um, what do you think it's going to take for everybody to have freedom? I don't know. I mean, that's a tough one because there, there are a lot of controlling interests. You know, some people that either want things the way they want them and so they're willing to take everybody else's freedom for that. Some people that have financial and monetary interests to trample on certain parts of freedom. I don't know what it is. I personally think President Trump's doing a a pretty good job of taking a lot of the regulations off that are really weren't too necessary and uh, opening up real freedom, you know, because I think one of the issues we've had lately are people clamping down on other people's freedoms to try to promote their own version of what they think it is. I think the deregulation that he's seeing is, is doing a pretty good job of actually opening up the American version of freedom. Uh, to people and allowing them to do what they want. But I think as long as we have Americans that love this country, that believe in whichever God they believe in, but they believe in a God and they work towards being a, a godly individual or, or you know following whatever, whatever their word says is the right way, because most religions have pretty much the same be a good person, love thy neighbor, love thy family. They have the same basic uh, premise. As long as people are working towards that thing, those things, and not trying to harm others in the process. I think we're on the right track. It's definitely a great perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, it is difficult when you think about freedom and what it means, because it means so many different things to different people. But I, I agree with you totally. When, if you're out to hurt somebody, whether it's physically or financially, emotionally, spiritually, then then you have to check what those core values are. You yeah. know, Of course, we can't control everybody, but... You know, let me ask you, you know, so let's just say there's somebody out there that's hurting, that has worn the uniform, um, any branch, male or female, doesn't matter, any rank. What kind of advice would you give to them if they were, if they're in a dark place? 
find somebody to talk to. Uh, you know, some places it's very hard to find another person, another former vet that really understands where you're feeling. Los Angeles is a huge place, but you know, the circles I was in there, I didn't really know any other vets. So I found my way to the VA and the VA gets a lot of bad raps, but there, there really are a lot of good people there. And there are some amazing groups. And that's, you know, the first step is actually seeking out one of those groups, seek out somebody that understands what you're going through that you can talk to. And if you can't get to that point, you know, one of the things about that writing therapy class that I taught that was so powerful, we had a lot of guys from the Vietnam era that just didn't want to talk about anything. And so, you know, the whole point was that, well, even writing it down has kind of the same therapeutic effect that, that writing, that talking would. So if you don't want to talk to somebody, write it down. When you're finished with it, if you want to show it to somebody, show it to somebody. If you want to rip it up and burn it, rip it up and burn it. But just that process and that act of getting this thing that's burning a hole inside of you out, it is very, very helpful. So if you can't, if you can't get to anybody else, just at least write it down if you don't want to talk to somebody. But thankfully, there's a lot of organizations out there now that are built around uh, giving support to these people that have worn the uniform that have gone through terrible things. There are a lot of them out there, but the, the hardest step of any, the hardest part of any journey is the first step. You've got to take that jet, that step, whether it be finding a group, making your way to the VA, or just writing it down. But you've got to start this healing process somehow. Definitely some great wisdom there, Robert. You know, well thought out. And uh, but it's true. If you're out there and you're you're in a dark place, reach out, write it down, try to come to grips with it, and, and nothing better than talking about it. You know, so we talked, we were smoking and joking, talking about patience between civilians and military. You know, what do you want the veteran, or I'm sorry, the non-veteran, the civilian population out there listening to know about veterans and especially combat veterans? Uh, so expect a lot more four-letter words than uh, <laughs> you're used to in the civilian populace, but you, so some of the benefits that vets bring to anything, number one is that whole, it's the mission oriented thinking, you know, and that's when you have a vet on your team, you are going to get the mission accomplished as long as you don't stand in their way. Right. So we might not be used to politics. We not might not be used to a lot of the things and we might be a little gruff and rough around the edges, but a vet will always accomplish the mission with whatever they have and with whatever whatever it takes. And that's a, a, a drive that you don't really see in a lot of civilian life. And, you know, also the ability to take a very big macro picture of what the full, what all the variables and what everything going on in a situation is. And that's something that I really, it's, it's unique to vets, or at least, at least it's unique in a way to the, that vets can do it, that I have not seen in the civilian population. And so there's a lot of these benefits you'll have, right? Vets just look at things differently. They can sum things up a lot easier. They can understand a process to fix a problem where a lot of people you know, from the civilian sector will just uh, spin around and around and around and say, we can't do this. This is terrible. A vet will figure out a process to fix it and accomplish their mission. And probably in the easiest way possible, right? Work uh, smarter, not harder. And there's a lot of benefits. But we're a little bit rough around the edges. Again, might curse a little bit more, you know, might have a, a, a thing of a, a Copenhagen in their lip every once in a while. But that it 
the end process, the end goal is getting all these things that we have where it might be a little rougher to get to that end result, but the end result is always accomplishing the mission. So have a little patience. Understand they came from a completely different lifestyle than you have ever known as a civilian, but they will get the mission accomplished at all costs. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, do you have a personal quote about life? Uh, yeah. Um, you, uh, you, oh, good Lord. It's the Wayne Gretzky one. I can't believe I, I just completely spaced on it. Uh, you can't score a goal without taking the shot. What is it? Um, oh, you've missed, you miss every shot you never take. That's a great quote. What what a great hockey player too. Yeah. You know, so I got, you know, well, thank you for being on straight out of combat radio. You know, uh, we, uh, we appreciate you taking the time to tell us your story and to, and to impart your wisdom. I mean, and it's important to continue to tell the stories We we look forward. When's the next book coming out, Robert? Uh, so the, the book two in the trilogy just came out, uh, two weeks ago. I just found out on Friday that might become a television show. Book three should be coming out hopefully within the next year because I want to wrap it up so I can start on the next series that I've been planning for about 10, five years. Hopefully in the next year, I really want to get it finished so we can work on the television show and uh, and get that trilogy wrapped up for all the fans that are out there and have really been asking for it. Awesome. So, we're you know, we have Robert Patrick Lewis, U.S. Special Forces combat veteran and writer. Uh, he's got a trilogy, The Pact and The Pact Book 2, Battle Hem of the Republic, which just came out, and he hopes to have the third part of that trilogy written by the end of the year. Glad you made it back safe, and again, appreciate your time and look forward to our next conversation, Robert. Hey, thank you, brother. It was an honor. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Before they burn it down.